those words that are quoted in your bulletin for today really grew out of a tradition that was born in 1954 with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. And it came together because there were people out of the black community who felt compelled to address a national crisis, specifically around issues of racism. And at the time, Martin Luther King said it was organized around the motto, to save the soul of America. And in 2017, another moment of national crisis is facing us. And saving the soul of America remains a concern addressed that we want to deal with this morning as we reflect on facing this national crisis with truth and integrity. One thing I noticed some years ago in this hymnal, the Singing the Living Tradition, when you sing Amazing Grace, there's a little footnote that gives you the option that you don't say to save a wretch like me, but to save a soul like me. I've always thought this is a significant option because if we take seriously a spirituality that says we are innately the offspring of the divine, that there's a divine spark instilled in each of us from birth, then none among us is a wretch. We may experience some wretched things in life, and maybe even do them, but none of us is a wretch. We are living souls that too often become captive to some wretched systems. A wretched system that doesn't have an equity distribution of what we need to live. And so we're living souls that need to be liberated from those wretched systems. And only in that sense are we in need of a salvation of our souls. And a better word for salvation would be liberation. It was out of a captivity to a traditional Christian fundamentalism into which I was ordained 60 years ago that my own soul was getting saved and liberated back in the 1960s when I was a pastor in a Lutheran church in Pittsburgh. I had come there to pastor a congregation that was in danger of losing its soul because most of its members had fled to the suburbs when there were changes going on in communities. And this community where the church was changed dramatically from a white working class neighborhood into an almost totally black community. And while there was a small remnant that remained with a commitment to do outreach, the mission was still framed in the traditional turn of how do you grow the church in numbers? The only change was going to be that now there was going to be outreach to people of color. But the same ultimate concerns. And it was that kind of traditional sense of mission that left me woefully unprepared for a day in the spring of 1963 when Pittsburgh was having its first civil rights demonstration. 
and I can say a lot more about how it happened that I was invited into this whole context, but right now I just want to focus on that special moment. This was a major demonstration going on in Pittsburgh in 1963 in a downtown block, the Duquesne Light Company. And the reason it was chosen is that the Duquesne Light Company provided needed services of light and energy, electricity, to everybody if you paid for it. And that included the black community. But they weren't hiring people from the black community. And that's why this was the place that was targeted. And the next day, when the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette was talking about this event, they noted that the spectators had outnumbered the demonstrators, and they estimated the demonstrators to be between six and 800 people. It's a massive, massive demonstration. And it was a day of really personal crisis for me because my background had not prepared me for where I really needed to be that day. But one of the black preachers whom I'd gotten to know after a few months in the community happened to spot me among the spectators and he came across the street and he reaches out and he says, Brother Don, I think you're on the wrong side of the street. And he literally takes me by the arm and suddenly, without any conscious action of my own, I was a demonstrator. And when that happens and you begin to see things from the other side of the street, your perspective begins to change. And the major change in perspective for me was a shift in relating to the very nature of being the church, what it means to be a faith community. Because when I came to Pittsburgh, I was still captive to a paradigm that said the ultimate concern about life on earth was about getting people ready for life in heaven and making sure they're going to find a way to do that. And it was my captivity to such a paradigm that prevented me from fully understanding where I needed to be on that day. And I vividly recall that in my early ministry, whenever questions arose about a need to address any kind of social, economic, political issue, my response was from my narrow Christian side of the street, Jesus didn't come into the world to make it a better place. He came into the world to take us all to a better place. And that was the mission. And the church was going to try to get as many people as possible into that belief system. And in the spirit of truth and integrity, I want to deal with today, I'd have to say that at that stage of history, Unitarians were not included among those I believed would end up in that better place. <laughs> but along with my encounter converting me from being a spectator to a demonstrator. And I don't use that term conversion lightly. But that walk across the street back in Pittsburgh is something I considered like an asphalt Jordan baptismal experience. And so I was embracing new dimensions in my faith and a new and different transcending meaning of a baptism I had had as an infant. And so from the perspective of the other side of the street, I began to take seriously what other people of faith 
we're thinking and saying that life is all about. And it included a lot of mainline faith traditions, even a lot of Unitarians. But then another radically different experience occurred for me. Out in that community, the black Muslims were organizing. And they had a few storefront places of business. One was a restaurant. I never was inside the restaurant, but they had micro, uh, what do I want to say, amplifiers outside, and they would play music. And one of the persons singing one day was someone named Louis Farrakhan. At that stage of history, he was one of Elijah Muhammad's major organizers. And he was singing this little ditty to a calypso beat. He was, by the way, a very gifted musician on the order of Harry Belafonte. And this is what he was singing. You can take it for what it's worth. Your heaven or hell is here on earth, and it's oh so easy to tell that a white man's heaven is a black man's hell. And so if I fast forward a little bit, what was happening is that my whole theology and sense of mission was going through a radical change. And within a space of several years, this church I was serving, Holy Cross Lutheran Church, had become the center for a lot of community activities of all kinds. And uh, one of the older white members one time wasn't happy about this and was saying, this isn't a church anymore, it's a community center. And I could only say, and thank God for that. But even our own limited space wasn't big enough to accommodate the things going on. And so we took on other properties and cultivated a community organization called the Brushton Inner City Encouragement Project. And the acronym for that was BICEP. And on one of the buildings we acquired that became the community center was this, if you can remember the, the Arm and Hammer logo. Well, this was an arm and hammer arm, a black arm on a white shield. And that was what stood out on the community center. But it was this concept of community organizing that had become a holy infection that turned my whole way of thinking uh, what the church needed to be about. And any faith tradition as far as that goes. I think that most faith traditions have abandoned the essential thing that called them into being in the first place. So to me, the emphasis had shifted, not trying to get people into heaven, but trying to bring heaven, a bit of heaven, into the hellish and wretched circumstances that so many people were subjected to. Introducing something qualitatively new in society and in the world. And on what is essentially soul-liberating and nurturing, there were five fundamental principles that became part of my theological paradigm, turned it around, converted it into something useful. And these five are, first, 
a capacity for critical appraisal. The second, a capacity for celebrating revolutionary newness and change. The third, a capacity for conversation and a dialectical approach in discovering what needs to be done and aiming for that which is qualitatively new and different. The fourth, a capacity for commitment and risk-taking, making oneself vulnerable. And finally, a capacity for cultivating community, emphasizing that community organizing also means organizing community, recognizing we are essentially communally communal by nature and that we need each other in pursuing that which is qualitatively new. And in terms of facing a national crisis today, I think these principles are essential to any kind of movement committed to truth and integrity. And they always begin with that kind of confessional spirit that I call a capacity for critical appraisal. A couple of months ago, especially during uh, Black History Month, I was reading some things. And the first one that I read that really began to impact me, uh, a book dealing with black history, The Blood of Emmett Till. And I encourage you to look for that. I brought along a copy of a bibliography that uh, might be shared here and help people. And uh, it's a story that reminded me of how indebted I am to that whole story of black liberation and black struggle. What we were just singing about, that we are celebrating those who have come over a way that with fears has been watered, treading our path through the blood of the slaughter, challenging us to stay on the path of justice, lest our feet stray from the places, our God, where we met you, lest our hearts, drunk with the wine of the world, we forget you. And so it's clear to me, black history is filled with a way that with tears has been watered. But when I was reading this book, I was shedding different tears because it describes a history of white supremacy that had evolved in America in earlier years but was rising again following the Supreme Court decision of 1954, the beginning of school desegregation and then the rise a reaction of white citizens' councils, as well as a history of grassroots organizing in black communities. But my tears were flowing when I read this because back in my seminary years of 1952 to 1957, these issues, this part of history, wasn't even on the radar screen. But I think it's a very fitting thing to remember and cultivating this capacity for critical appraisal that we can recognize that while contextual realities have changed nationally and globally, the spirit of white citizens' councils remains. By whatever name or movements they may be called, even rising to the levels of elected officials and government administrators, some even occupying the highest 
offices in the land. And in that connection, a little bit of Virginia history. We've got a highway out here dedicated to Harry Flood Bird. What we need to remember is the old Harry Flood Bird era and the whole story of the Bird Organization and its role in signing on to the Southern Manifesto and his call for massive resistance to desegregation. And so our concern today, I think, is one of facing a national crisis noted in the biblical prophet Micah, who, whose words still ring out clearly that this is what God wants, only this, to live out justice, to love with tenderness and compassion, and to live in a spirit of humility. And we might take all that process of critical appraisal a lot further and I would hope that someday I might be able to come back in some other context that we can pursue some of that together. It's more than we can do just this morning. But I come to the second part to recognize that if we ever wanted to come close to a capacity for celebrating revolutionary newness and change, we need to recognize we never had a revolution to start with. We had a transfer of power from some English gentlemen there to some English gentlemen here. Not a revolution. And I think that we, I would agree with some of the people who said we passed up one of the most viable moments in our history for bringing about some revolutionary change with some Democratic National Committee rigging, denying Bernie Sanders a real chance of becoming the choice of an enlightened electorate. Because socialism is still regarded by some people as wretched and evil by the patriarchal oligarchies who are heirs to the founding fathers. And alongside that, consider the traditional educational system that has operated with the same assumptions, too often supported by major religious institutions. And I can remember, but I didn't fully understand it at the time, but in reflecting back on it, the role that Billy Graham played when he began holding crusades in stadiums 60 years ago when I was being ordained, condemning godless communism and socialism, but with never a single word about the godless impact of capitalism and the cultivation of corporate domination. And now with corporations taking on personhood and with Citizens United declared the law of the land, we're a long way from celebrating authentic and revolutionary newness and change. And so I think it's high time for cultivating that capacity for some conversation and a dialectal, dialectical approach for discovering what needs to be, to be done. And I can't think of a better place to start than with those words of Martin Luther King 50 years ago at the Riverside Church in New York. I'm convinced that if we're to get on the right side of the world revolution, 
we as a nation must undergo a radical revolution of values. We must begin the shift from a thing-oriented society to a person-oriented society. When machines and computers, profit motives, and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, materialism, and militarism are incapable of being conquered. And what links racism, materialism, and militarism is that a friend of mine named Arthur Waskow, Rabbi Arthur Waskow at the Shalom Center out in Philadelphia says, they all have the same DNA of subjugation and domination. And of course, the fourth thing of a commitment for risk-taking to confront all this, what better role model than Martin Luther King? And finally, before that, coming back to this capacity for conversation and a dialectical approach in discovering what needs to be done, I would want to invite people to a deepened concern for biblical literacy. Not because the Bible is a repository of truth and hardly of any kind of absolute truth that people want to claim for it. But that first of all, because if the Bible and its essential narrative were properly understood and interpreted, it could lead to a deepened sense of truth and integrity. And so I think some of us who've been enlightened and liberated, we need to become missionaries to some of those sisters and brothers who keep using this Bible, but in a distorted and misunderstood way. There's something there that could do something to deepen a sense of truth and integrity. And the second thing is because its essential significance and meaning has been distorted by what have been alternative facts that have contributed to a miseducation and a wretched distortion of history that has dulled our capacity for critical awareness over against systems that maintain domination and control in social, economic, political contexts. And if we were going to footnote this, just consider the Council for National Policy. Have you heard about this? Google the Council for National Policy. It's a process that was begun by the family of someone named Betsy DeVos. Calling for the restoration of education in America that would minimize the federal role and promote religious schools and homeschooling and enshrine historic Judeo-Christian principles that is a distortion of those principles as the way we do education. So uh, to just talk about the importance again of cite someone by the name of John Dominic Crossan. Have you ever read anything by John Dominic Crossan? Uh, he's been part of a group called the Jesus Seminar and getting at the historical Jesus. And 
He said somewhere a few years back, it's not that those ancient people told literal stories and we're now smart enough to take them symbolically or metaphorically, but they told them symbolically and metaphorically and we've been dumb enough to take them literally. And then finally, a word about this capacity for community and pursuing community organizing. Understanding by community, I think we need to think of two German words. The first is the word Gesellschaft. And it's best understood as a community that is held together by boundaries of custom and belief that are rigidly enforced or by walls that are erected to keep people in or to keep some other people out. And the second is the word Gemeinschaft. And what it means is a community in which persons are drawn together around a common center. Not a rigid belief system, but a common center of understanding. We are all people endowed with a spirit of the divine. And that divine spark and that our task in life is to cultivate that with love and tenderness and compassion, as Micah said, and to live in a spirit of humility. And so as we go on our way, facing a national crisis with truth and integrity, I think we could lift up the great poetic words of Langston Hughes, who said, Oh, yes, I say it plain. America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. And so let's rise and sing. We shall overcome. 169.